What is up? I am Evan Lovett, and welcome to my new podcast, In a Minute with Evan Lovett. This is an Odyssey original brought to you by my company, In a Minute Media, coming to you live from my studio in the heart of my favorite city in the world, Los Angeles, California. Let's get into it. Yo, episode number 26 of In a Minute with Evan Lovett. And I'm at the IM Studios in the heart of Los Angeles, but I will not be giving the exact location. In fact, I'm locking the doors, shutting the blinds, and staying low-key. Why? Because I was researching an episode of LA in a Minute, and I stumbled upon this fact. Los Angeles is the serial killer capital of the world. I repeat, Los Angeles is the serial killer capital of the world. Now, this is part of my ongoing true crime series, and I'm going to dive into the gruesome and horrifying history of serial killers in Los Angeles, going all the way back to the very first identified serial killer in L.A. almost 100 years ago. And since then, more than two dozen have followed in his footsteps. So why is L.A. the serial killer capital of the world? Let's get into it. So there have been at least 22 serial killers that have killed in Los Angeles. I say at least because that's all we know of. 19 identified serial killers and three unidentified. Now the identified include the obvious notorious ones. Richard, the Night Stalker Ramirez, the Hillside Strangler, which was actually two Hillside Stranglers, Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Buono. The Grim Sleeper, Lonnie David Franklin Jr., But there was also the bouncing ball killer, the skid row stabber, the Harbor City serial shooter, all of whom were never caught nor identified. But before we go much further, I got to define what is a serial killer? This is a term given to somebody that's typically a person who kills three or more people with the murders taking place over more than a month and including a significant period of time between each killing. Now, this definition is a little nebulous because Wikipedia says that a serial killer is just somebody who's killed two. But the term, and I'm going to tell you where it comes from. Robert Ressler, a former FBI investigator, the man who literally wrote the book on modern criminology in 1970. He was a person who came up with the term serial homicide. And he did so in 1974 in a lecture at Police Staff Academy in the United Kingdom, of all places. But that said, the credit for coining the term serial killer goes to an LAPD homicide detective, a man named Pierce Brooks, who created something called the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, otherwise known as VICAP, in 1985. Now, VICAP was responsible for the analysis of serial violent and sexual crimes. And Brooks was appointed as the first director, primarily because he was a homicide detective in L.A. And he'd been the first to propose the idea, right? This is a big database. This is right when technology is is coming to the forefront. And Brooks was inspired by the Harvey Glattman case he had worked on, another serial killer in L.A. in in the late 50s. And Brooks had realized that serial homicides could be linked by signature aspects. This was a breakthrough at the time. And 
it was through his work with Robert Ressler of the FBI back in the early 1980s where they discussed the idea and Brooks kind of piggybacked on Ressler's term of serial homicides and he came up with the term serial killer. So that being said, back to why Los Angeles is indeed the serial killer capital of the world. Check this out. From a macro perspective, the United States has had more serial killers than any other country. Big shock, right? There have been a total of 12,236 victims of serial killings identified in the United States. And California has the highest number of those serial killings with 1,777, more than 800 of which were in Los Angeles. Now, to put that in perspective, the second closest state behind California is Texas with 984 victims. So, yeah, Los Angeles almost has as as many serial killer victims as the second largest state. So L.A. has more serial killer victims than 49 other states and pretty much every other country. So I'd say that pretty well establishes Los Angeles as a serial killer capital of the world. Now, we have to look at why. What makes this wonderful, special, amazing place such a great place to be a serial killer? Well, the main factors usually attributed are as follows. Number one, we have a huge victim pool. 13 million people in the LA metro area. Now that's a huge number. Second behind New York. And within that potential victim pool, you have a preponderance of young, attractive potential victims. And that's a factor. That's a, that's a real thing. People come to LA to be models, actresses, influencers, to make it. And that combination of willingness to seek out opportunity, maybe answer a cold call or go into an otherwise ill-advised meeting is seen as more likely here in Los Angeles. It's the ambition of desperation. Sure, I'll meet you in that abandoned office building uh, if it means I might get the part. So that's number one. Number two is in that pool of people, Los Angeles is a place of transplants and has a very transient population. People without as strong of a root system, at least locally. Nobody to check up or check in with, especially in the days before smartphones. And LA, as we've discussed, has always had more transplants than natives. And when a transplant goes missing, especially again before smartphones, it took longer for people to catch on and figure out that something may be awry. I mean, now you're checking in on social media and stuff, but back in the day, you know, it could be weeks before you even contact your brother, hear from your brother. And if you watch any of the cold case shows, you know that the first 48, the first 48 hours are going to be the most important time to start solving the crime. And in many instances with transplants, people simply haven't noticed their disappearance until the case is, well, gone cold. Now, the third main factor why LA is a serial killer capital of the world is the weather. I'm serious. This is from Tom Lang, a 20-year homicide detective. When the weather is perfect, it makes finding a victim, drawing out a victim, and murdering a victim easier. 
No nasty precipitation to deal with. No unexpected storms. No meteorological mess. People are also much more likely to go out and explore maybe places they're not accustomed to when the weather is nice. So yeah, this awesome climate that drew so many people to LA, it's also what makes more people likely to be victims. Now the fourth factor, freeways. Mm-hmm. Can't go an episode without talking about car culture. How LA is that? The home of the first freeway. The land of 20 plus freeways spanning 600 plus miles. So why freeways? What that means is it's easier to find victims and easier to escape. It's also a more wider, accessible area to cover or to flee. In fact, some of LA's serial killers have done their killing on the freeway, such as William Bonin, who was dubbed the freeway killer. And those very freeways are connected to another factor. Something that perhaps explains why New York, with nearly twice the population, doesn't have the same propensity for serial killers. And this is the fifth factor. Wide open space. New York doesn't have it. L.A. does. Desolate areas. You can hop on those freeways in L.A. And within 20 minutes, you could be at the Angeles National Forest, the Bologna Wetlands, the Santa Susana Pass, the ocean. To put it crudely, there are a ton of highly accessible places to bury and or dispose of a body. Lastly, and perhaps the most facilitative of serial killers in Los Angeles is this. Jurisdiction. There are dozens of separate police entities in Southern California. Listen to this. There are six state law enforcement agencies in L.A., including the CHP, the UC police, and the hospital police. There are two county agencies, the sheriff and the probation department, and 45 city police departments from Alhambra to Montebello to Vernon that each have their own PD. And Los Angeles proper has the LAPD, the park rangers, the airport police, the port police, and the school police. So all of these agencies have their own jurisdiction. And you've seen enough cop shows to know that once a crime or criminal happens or happens to be outside of one jurisdiction and needs to be picked up by another. Well, it's a game of telephone at that point. And the fact that many serial killers cross city boundaries, these invisible lines, it makes communication and information transfer between these departments absolutely paramount. But again, information exchange is not always open and transparent, especially when jurisdiction is involved. And that is music to the ears of a serial killer. I mean, Los Angeles was such a, quote, perfect atmosphere for serial killing that in the 1980s, that was officially dubbed the serial killer decade in Los Angeles. 25-year homicide detective Bob Souza said, and I quote, there were so many serial killers operating in greater Los Angeles all at the same time in the 1980s that this had never happened anywhere in the world. It was one after the other, four or five serial killers working at once. I mean, four or five serial killers simultaneously in LA in the 80s, the serial killer decade and the serial killer capital of the world. Now, 
Today, advances in technology, forensics, cameras have combined to lower the frequency of these serial killings, but it still happens. I mean, there's a man named Alexander Hernandez from Silmar who was known as the Valley Killer because he murdered five people in a series of random drive-by shootings, mostly in the Valley, between March and August of 2014. He targeted random people and dogs, murdering five, injuring 11 others, and killing two dogs. I mean, this was nine years ago. Another recent L.A. serial killer was John Ewell, who robbed and murdered middle-aged and elderly people in L.A. from 2010 to 2012. So, I mean, it's still happening, even with this advances in technology. And, I mean, we already mentioned the Night Stalker, the Hillside Strangler. There was also the Lonely Hearts Killer, the Toolbox Killer, the Sunset Strip Killer. So, why are there nicknames for serial killers? Well, the police and the media both have reasons. The media actively seeks to increase audience through sensationalization and disproportionate coverage of crimes like serial killings. And they do this in part by devising these dramatic names for the killers because it amplifies the fear and the excitement surrounding these stories. So in short, for the media, it's about ratings. But this actually benefits police, no matter the jurisdiction, as well, because names like the Night Stalker are much more vivid and it helps to alert the general public to a potential danger, especially in times like today with so many distractions. So in both cases, we also don't really know the, the real names of these serial killers at the time. So the nicknames stick and it helps identify somebody that isn't otherwise identifiable. In short, when you say the Night Stalker, that's way more distinct than unknown culprit kills fifth victim. So that's why there's nicknames. And in a place like Los Angeles, where the media and the police are so high profile, I mean, it makes sense that we would almost elevate these, these serial killers to high profile status as well. So makes sense. Now, I'm going to get into something. This is a series on In a Minute with Evan Lovett, this true crime series. Every so often, I love to drop a true crime episode. I'm not going to get into the spine-chilling details of every one of these serial killers. We just don't have enough time. I mean, eventually, might have more episodes uh, that cover them all. But I do want to highlight three today. These are three that, for me, I hadn't heard of, or they're so peculiar and unique to L.A. that they're stories that I want to detail. And I'm going to, I'm going to try to keep them moderately brief. But the first one... I bring up because it was the first known serial killer in Los Angeles. Gordon Stewart Northcott. Northcott was born in Canada, the turn of the 20th century. But he immigrated to L.A. in the mid-1920s. And he convinced his father to buy him a plot of land in Wineville, which is now Mira Loma, 1926. On that plot of land, he built a chicken ranch and a house. Now, within two years, February 1928, L.A. County Sheriff's deputies found a burlap bag containing a headless body in La Puente in a ditch. A male teenager had been shot through the heart with a 22 caliber rifle and decapitated. The next few months, three more boys vanished. A boy named Walter from Mount Washington who disappeared on his way to the movies and two brothers from Pomona 
Nelson and Lewis, who were 10 and 12, went missing in May. They were walking home from a yacht club, a model yacht club meeting. And by September that same year, 1928, federal immigration authorities received a call from a Canadian woman. She said her nephew had kidnapped her son and was holding him in a chicken coop. Now, investigators arrived at this chicken coop in Wineville and they found the boy, the the nephew of the Canadian woman, Stanford Wesley Clark. He was 15. But the kidnapper, the accused kidnapper, I should say, Gordon Stewart Northcott, had disappeared with his mother, Sarah Louise. And Stanford Clark told authorities that Northcott kidnapped little boys, molested them, killed them with an axe, poured quicklime over their remains, which I guess helps dispose bodies, and would bury whatever was left on the ranch. And as for the body in La Puente, he said that Northcott killed a young Mexican ranch hand, dumped the body, and brought the head back to the ranch and smashed the skull. Now, Clark himself, this 15-year-old, he admitted to participating in the murder of one of the brothers, one of the Pomona brothers, but he said that Gordon Northcott had forced him for threat of murdering him. Now, police were hot on the trail, and speaking of jurisdiction, the Canadian Mounties captured Gordon and his mother, Sarah Louise, in Canada, and they held him without bond. And in the meantime, while they were waiting extradition, Clark led the investigators on a hunt from the Wineville farm to the Northcott family home in Boyle Heights, as well as a cabin that Gordon Northcott rented in, in Saugus. Those places, officers found traces of human blood, blood-stained axes, strands of human hair. But what they found beneath the chicken coop was perhaps the most appalling. Graves filled with bones, quick lime, blood-soaked mattress pieces, and a 22 caliber rifle and bullets of the type used to kill the Mexican teenager. So in December of 1928, three months after his arrest, Northcott was taken to that chicken ranch in handcuffs. Police say that he confessed to killing nine boys there, but then retracted and said he had only killed five. And then in a written confession, he actually owned up to just one, the Mexican ranch hand. But he did say it was not self-defense and that he would plead guilty in court. Now, his mom, who said she would do anything to protect Northcott, confessed to say that she had killed one of the boys with an axe and she ended up being sentenced to life in prison. But Northcott himself went to trial the next year. It was a 27-day trial and he was convicted of three murders, sentenced to death via strangulation in 1930 at San Quentin. And now when they went to hang him, the rope failed to break his neck and it took him 13 minutes to die. Wow. Now that is poetic justice. But what a terrible, terrible story. And as for Wineville, why you possibly haven't heard of Wineville, is it had enough of its bad publicity and the townsfolk changed the name to Miraloma. And that was the end of Gordon Stewart Northcott, the first serial killer in Los Angeles. Now, the second Los Angeles serial killer was a man named Michael Player. 
committed a total of 10 murders in Skid Row, which earned him the nickname the Skid Row Slayer. And this was in the uh, serial killer decade of the 1980s. He began killing on September 4th, 1986. It was the third case of a serial killer who had operated in Skid Row in Los Angeles just since the mid-1970s. And that first killing was when Player walked up behind 54-year-old Rudolfo Roque and shot him in the back of the head. And now Roque was not homeless, and he had arrived from San Diego just three days earlier to visit his friend. And after killing Roque, Player got rid of the weapon. But he didn't escape in time, and he was detained by police just after his first killing. He was interrogated at the police station, but he was released due to lack of evidence. But he went on to murder five more people, at least, all of whom were shot while sleeping. Five days later, he shot a 66-year-old. week after that, he shot a 31-year-old and wounded a 47-year-old. But that 47-year-old had serious injuries and he ended up dying a month after that. And he continued killing through the rest of September, October, including a 23-year-old. On October 9th, he attempted to kill a man named Terrence Dunn, who managed to survive being shot in the head. And Dunn provided a description of the attacker to the authorities, and they created a composite. And they released that, the media. This is when the media helps. And the name, you know, the Skid Row Slayer, you know, it's all over the newspapers. So the day after the newspapers reported all that, he shot and killed himself in an L.A. hotel. They located bloodstained shoes, two guns. A ballistic examination confirmed that the victims had been killed with one or the other of those guns. And Terrence Dunn, who was the survivor, identified him from a photograph as the same man who had tried to kill him on October 9th. So based on the facts, the police pinned all 10 murders on player, the Skid Row Slayer. Although the motive was never released. Never known. Third up is a man named Adolf Laudenberg, who was born in Kentucky in 1926. Now, Laudenberg worked in naval construction. He was in Trinidad, West Indies, and it's where he met his future wife, Anel. He adopted her son. They moved with him to L.A. after Adolf left the service. And he got a job as a security guard at a steel plant before he became a cab driver in San Pedro in the late 1960s. So using his job as, as a caddy, Lottenberg's M.O. consisted of picking up lonely, alcoholic, or sick women who reminded him of his now ex-wife, Anel. And what Lundberg would do would be to bind, rape, and strangle them. Now, police caught up with them pretty quick during the initial investigations. But he denied everything and there were no clues or evidence left behind, so he was let off. But by 1975, Lundberg confessed to his future daughter-in-law that he had indeed killed four women. Three in San Pedro and one in San Francisco. And he called those his four sins. Now, the future daughter-in-law believed his story. She told the authorities, but they couldn't prove anything. So the case remained open. But by 2002, Lonberg, I guess 
This man had a guilty conscience. His son's ex-wife, Renee, he met with her and he confessed again. This is now 26, 27 years after his first confession. And this time he explained it in far greater detail. And she notified police. And by then, there had been advances in DNA. So they reopened the cold case. But Lonberg had no criminal records. So they had to get his DNA through other means. Now, an undercover officer made contact with Lonberg, invited him to coffee at a Torrance restaurant. I don't know how he got him to agree, but he did. So they sat and had coffee together. And Lonberg walked away without throwing away his coffee cup. Another officer who was on the scene swept in, grabbed the cup, and they extracted DNA samples and sent them for testing. And that matched seminal fluid that was found on one of the corpses of the murder victims. He was arrested, held on million-dollar bail, and charged with the murder of the one victim. But he denied it. He denied the other murders. Nonetheless, at trial, found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. And again, the reason I choose Lonberg is he's almost an afterthought. I mean, this isn't these big time slings. These aren't, again, Hillside Strangler, you know about, Night Stalker, all these guys. But there are so many that it's kind of unbelievable that these things just haven't even been talked about or discussed a lot of these cases, but we really are the serial killer capital of the world. And on that note, I want to close with a personal story about a serial killer. And honestly, one of the most distinct memories of my childhood, I was eight years old and my parents left me home for the evening. Okay. And my parents were hippies. They were partiers. That's what they did. I mean, again, it's the eighties, bro. Yeah. But this was also during the height of Richard Ramirez terrorizing Los Angeles. He'd killed all over the city, including the Valley. And I lived in Sepulveda at the time, now North Hills. But he'd had victims in Glendale and Northridge and really no area was safe. But again, my parents had a, had a life to live and I was a responsible kid. So flash forward to bedtime. I was going to sleep in my parents' bed because that's where I felt the most safe. And their bedroom was on the second story. Bed was pushed against the center of the wall in the back of the room and the TV right in front of me. So I'm watching TV and dozing off. And all of a sudden, I see this shadow on the wall of a human figure. At least that's what I thought it was. For sure. A person. So I turned off the TV and I froze. I just, I was like, I'm not moving. I'm not breathing. I'm not making a sound. If I don't move, whoever this is won't know I'm here, right? I'm eight years old. I mean, you know, I don't. So I see this human shadow move and it keeps moving. And my parents outside this window, there was a flat roof. It wasn't like one of those two story houses with the, the pitch roof. It was like a flat area that you could walk on. I'd, I'd been up there and the shadow kept moving and I was mortified. And the thoughts are running in my head a million miles an hour. I was positive. This wasn't just any human. This wasn't just a burglar. This was the night stalker in my head. At least it was. And I was too young to have any weapons. Only thing I could think of was that my baseball bat, I was a big baseball guy, I still am. It was downstairs and I had nothing else to defend myself. 
tried to breathe as slowly and as quietly as possible. And again, just not move a muscle. And I was staring at this shadow, just wishing it would go away. But it was there. And then it seemed like this shadow froze as well, waiting for me to move. So this person, maybe Richard Ramirez, could confirm that there was a potential victim, maybe me, inside to grab and kill. So I stayed as still as I could for what seemed like an hour until the shadow finally disappeared. I didn't hear footsteps to confirm whatever it was walking away, but it was gone. And yeah, even after my parents came home that night, I slept in their bed. And I'll never know what that shadow really was, but there's no convincing me, at least at the time, for years after, that it wasn't Richard Ramirez. And I don't know if trauma is the right word, because nothing ended up happening. I mean, I'm here to this day. But for years after that incident, I'm talking even through the time I was grown up and married, I was absolutely paranoid about people breaking in. Every single night, I would check every door and every window to make sure they were closed and locked and nobody could have easy access to the house. Huge proponent of alarms, security cameras, you name it. All because I was spooked by the thought of a serial killer being right at my bedroom window. My parents' bedroom window. And to think, back then, I didn't even know that Los Angeles was the serial killer capital of the world. Whew. So that was episode 26 of In a Minute with Evan Lovett. Literally have the chills. Stay safe. I'm very grateful that I'm here that you're here. I'm thankful to everybody that listens. Thank you for joining me on this exploration of our amazing city. Serial killers or not. True crime is crazy, man. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, if you liked it, please give me that five-star rating. And if you love it, leave a review. It's going to be super helpful as we continue to grow, continue to skyrocket up the charts. And don't forget to follow and subscribe. Thank you again for supporting In A Minute with Evan Lovett. All right, y'all. It's been a minute.